Hi, it's Louisa. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about this episode. This episode is about climate anxiety. And when I was thinking about what I wanted my first episode to focus on, I knew that I wanted it to be something personal that I had experienced, you know, something that I had dealt with and was going to be excited to talk about with other people. And the first thing that really came to mind was climate anxiety. You know, I am from California and the wildfires last year really put into perspective the devastation that I've come to feel as a looming presence in my life. You know, not only because these fires are every year, but because they're getting worse, because they're getting closer to my home and the places that I hold the most dear. And I simultaneously, as all these fires were going on, was feeling really, really alone. And I think it took me months to realize how my climate anxiety made me feel so isolated. You know, I am a very anxious person. I struggle with anxiety. I always have. And the conversations that we have about mental health, I think, are very different from the conversations that we have about climate anxiety. You know, my anxiety is my anxiety. And climate anxiety is something that I think we all experience. But I feel like we talk about our own mental health, you know, whatever things we may struggle with, anxiety, depression, more than we talk about climate anxiety. And I think I was kind of confused as to why I felt so isolated. But then I realized in the spaces where I'm supposed to feel the most community in these climate spaces is where we're talking about these things the least. And so I really wanted to make this episode to maybe help you feel less alone. I don't know. I know that it definitely helped me not only to talk to people about their climate anxiety, but even listening back to these interviews as I was editing. I think we all could use a little bit of climate anxiety therapy. So I hope that this can be that for you. And even if it means that you get to go and feel like you want to talk to somebody else about your climate anxiety, I think I've done my job. And it was the most eerie thing because it got dark and there was no stars, no moon, no anything. It was pitch black except for the cars on the road. And it was ter- it was probably one of the weirdest things like I've experienced. Like it was just such an eerie feeling. I remember hearing a statistic about how it takes thousands of years, if ever, for plastic to biodegrade in elementary school. And I don't think I've stopped thinking about it since. And I remember reading this and thinking to myself, 
what the fuck did I get myself into? Like, what did I walk into? I remember the he was talking about like the world on fire, and I was like, I felt like my chest tighten, and I was like, oh shit, like like this is happening now. People in their teens and twenties and early thirties, you know, these are real problems that we're going to have to fix or that we're going to have to address um, because they're not going away. It's Pandora's box. The more you read about it, like the more you're like, oh no, like really? I don't know how to make it like seem like an emergency to people that like genuinely think it's not an emergency and that they won't be here to experience the most severe consequences. I remember on my my first day of undergrad, uh, I was starting an environmental studies degree and I went to my environment and society class and my professor assigned us a reading to do for the first 15 minutes of the class. And the reading was, uh, this was August, 2017. Um, I think this was just Hurricane Harvey had just hit Texas or something. And there it, it had been a wild hurricane season already. I think Maria had happened. Um, and I could be wrong about that timeline. Um, it was a wild year, but we read the New Yorker piece, uh, the uninhabitable earth by David Wallace Wells. Um, before the book came out, it was, uh, it was a, a feature story in the New Yorker. And I remember this was like nine thirty in the morning on a Monday, first day of college. And I, I was already freaking the fuck out because 18 at a new school for the first time. Um, and I remember reading this and thinking to myself, what the fuck did I get myself into? Like, what did I walk into? I remember the, he was talking about like the world on fire. And I was like, I felt like my chest tighten. And I was like, oh shit, like, like this is happening now. I was thinking of like forest fires and stuff. And so I think that was the first time that I remember having like, a physical reaction to, I mean, at the time I didn't realize it was climate anxiety, but that was like the first time that I had like a, a visceral reaction to my awareness of the climate changing. I think that Charlie's story is one that a lot of us can empathize with. Um, one question that I asked everyone that I interviewed was if there was a moment or a series of moments that they experienced that really showed them that climate change was a threat and kind of sparked their climate anxiety. And before I play some of those clips, I wanted to explain what that moment was like for me. I think 
a lot of people in Gen Z had moments when they were very young where they either experienced a severe climate event or they heard about one because we were exposed to so much international news. Um, But when I was eight or nine, I saw a book, I think in my school library, about polar bears. And it was all about how the ice caps were melting and the polar bears were losing their homes. And I was so devastated by the idea of unintentionally harming something. I decided for my birthday party in third grade, rather than have anyone bring birthday presents, I asked people to donate to the NRDC and to bring their receipt their proof of donation as their present to me and obviously now when I think back on that moment I know that that was the beginning of my climate anxiety but at the time I think I was really just astounded that I felt like I was the only one who felt that way and so hearing all these other stories made me feel a lot less alone and I hope that they do the same thing for you. Well, I, I, I grew up like just outside of Yosemite and like had to get evacuated like wreck that, I guess that was much more my, my introduction to climate change and just like the fragility of climate in general, because like the reason for those wildfires, it's not because it's too hot. Like, yes, it is too hot, but like the reason why is because there's bark beetles that come and eat the look inner lining between bark and the tree and then like eat away basically it's like blood veins where it like how it supplies like life force to its leaves and such um and then those trees are just dead and like ripe for burning and those are like native to africa like they're not um and it's just like that's that like yeah just like how fragile everything is like and how easily it can just be like taken out. Um, I like don't think I like it sounds sad, but it's just like it's an ongoing crisis. It's not like there's one moment that I was like, oh, like now we have to deal with climate change. It's like it's just been the buildup of like all of these things over time for so long. But I do think a lot about like when I um, like started out in politics and like decided that was something that I cared about, I focused primarily on healthcare um, and the idea being like that everyone should have access to care um, and that like it was like a problem that we didn't have that. And I was like, okay, like that's fair, but like there is always going to be like opportunities to reform and make our healthcare system better. And there's always going to be problems with it, even if we adopt a system that I'm super excited about. But like, we only get one chance to like, fix this. And like, we're like on a timeline there. And that's not to undermine like the validity of 
other arguments um, and advocates that work for Medicare for all and other important healthcare policy. But at the same time, like this is an emergency and no one is acting like it's an emergency. So I think probably high school um, or like 2016 or 2017. As I got older, I started becoming aware of climate in really the most intimate and immediate aspects of my life the most. And even though I'm aware of like the fact that individual action is not the, the cause of climate change, it's still something where if I see people kind of recklessly throwing things away in front of me, I can't watch. This next story is a longer one. It's from an interview with Ellie White, who I talked to a few weeks ago, and she told me about a severe weather event she experienced back in 2018. I'm going to let her tell the rest of the story, but I just wanted to say that I'm playing the whole thing because Ellie does a really good job of painting a picture of how climate anxiety can emerge from just one event and the emotions we can experience not only during an event like this, but after it too. Here's Ellie. I actually, in 2018, I was in uh, Connecticut with my partner. Um, My partner's family lives in Connecticut, and so we were visiting them. And I remember we were in, um, in the living room with his younger sister. And I remember just um, looking at my phone and it was like, you know, you should seek shelter if you're outside, like you should come inside. Um, so of course we were already inside and, and some time had passed. And I remember getting up from the family room and from the family room, there's a few steps up into the kitchen, right? And so I was going up into the kitchen, um, walking up those steps and, you know, the wind was starting to pick up, things were becoming more intense. And, um, I just remember once I was in the kitchen, they have an Island and, and right in front of the Island, there is a sliding glass door. And I just remember looking out the sliding glass door and just seeing all of the yard furniture, just whipping across the yard. And, um, I'm like, oh, this is not good. <laughs> like, this is really bad. And, you know, at that point, then all of our phones go off and they start buzzing and they're like, you need to seek shelter immediately. Um, and at this point, then, you know, the house is starting to shake. The wind is really picking up. I look at my partner. I'm like, you need to get the dog. Like, I'll get the cats. I'm like, to his younger sister, I'm like, Alish, you need to get in the basement. Like, this is like, this is not good. Um, And I just remember, you know, we went down to the basement and at that point, um, you kind of, I kind of like blacked it out a little bit because you're in survival mode. Right. And you're, you're like, I'm just trying to get through the next, like however many minutes until this is over and just trying to survive. And I, am sure anyone who has experienced a climate event, um, that is extreme can relate. She's in a car in the middle of this. Um, and I just remember after, it had settled down and things, as I said, you know, I kind of blacked a lot of it out. Um, We walked upstairs and I looked outside and I just remember seeing, I mean, there were just trees down everywhere. The neighbor's house was on fire. And fortunately the, you know, we were able to get through and and the fire department was able to come. Um, 
but they were like, you, you should not leave your house because there are live wires down, you know, like things could fall. And at this point, I'm like, seriously, like what just happened? Like, is it tornado? Was it like, what was it? So it turns out what Ellie had experienced in that story is what's called a macro burst. And a macro burst, according to the National Severe Storms Laboratory, is a big burst of strong winds at or near the surface with really significant horizontal dimensions. And the best way to visualize this process is imagine you turn on your faucet all the way and the water splashes at the bottom of the sink. That's what a macro burst is. The column of water is the downdraft and the outward spray at the bottom of the sink is the macro burst. So imagine you are in a house and a macro burst hits, trees can flatline, damage can be as significant as a tornado. These events can be totally devastating. And Ellie's experience really highlights the ways that these events that really shouldn't be occurring as frequently as they are, as we all know, can have such a severe impact on our mental health and the way that we experience climate anxiety. One of the first resources that I looked into when I was doing research for this episode was an article in The Guardian from last year. It was published by Matthew Taylor and Jessica Murray, and they tell some stories about different young people and the impact that the climate crisis has had on their mental health and the ways that they deal with that. You know, a lot of them used it as a motivator to get involved in the climate space, and a lot of the people that I talked to for this episode had the same experience. I know I did. You know, one of the things that was most interesting to me about this idea of climate anxiety being used as a motivator for getting involved in the climate space is, you know, we don't do this because we just think it's cool. We don't do this because we think it's fun and we get to have a job that we are excited to go to every day. Maybe we are, but for a lot of us, there's a much bigger reason behind it. And it's something that lots of other generations haven't had to deal with. I have such a hard time thinking about like, okay, I'm starting my career. Am I supposed to think about starting, you know, an IRA fund or a 401k or like thinking about my long-term plan? These are things, right? Where like, I come from like an upper middle class home. These are the things that I know that I'm supposed to, to do, right? It all seems so pointless and meaningless to me because I, I'm like, I don't need to be doing that. What I need to be doing is learning how to cultivate my own food for when the food systems collapse. 
Yeah. I have like a joke with my boyfriend that we're going to have chickens and like I'm going to grow all of our food in our backyard. But like it's like kind of not a joke. Like I really actually no. like I'm fully going to learn how to do all of that stuff. And like I want to figure out a way to be self-sustaining because it comes from this idea of like I could lose everything in a day. Like there's no way I have to be able to like keep my family alive if it comes to it. And it sounds in an abstract way like, oh, that's going to be so fun. Like I love to garden. We had chickens when I was little and like that was so much fun. And I love for my kids to be able to grow up with chickens like great, fun, quirky little garden girl. But like also in the back of my mind, it's like this is like live or die. Like you have to be able to sustain yourself because there's this looming threat that could hit you any day, especially if we're living in California, where like, we're probably going to end up living and we could be flooded in a day and lose everything or a wildfire could hit us and we could lose everything. Um, so I to I get that. Like I need to be able to live in the forest by myself and feed myself. Mm. And it's interesting because, like, I talked to my dad about it. And he's just like, oh, you know, in the 80s, like, smog was so bad. Like, we were being told, blah, blah, blah. And we were fine now. And it's like, no, dude. Like, yeah, you had smog. And they were telling you. And they had no – they didn't have the data to back it up. Now we have the data to back up what they're saying. We're seeing these aggressive things. And he's just like, oh, no, you see, it'll be fine. Because, like, we were told the same things you're being told. And it was fine. It's just like – it's a different world, dude. Like, I – it's really, really different. It's – I don't think other generations can understand that because for them, it's like, you know, even if you're in your fifties right now, it's like, and like, you're thinking like, like 30, 40 years, like, well, like 30, 40 years, like the world went, whatever, like I'll be about to die anyways versus us. It's like, yeah. damn, like we have to think about like ethically bringing kids into this world. We need to think about like, is there a way, like, like how do we prevent this? Like, cause mm -hmm. that's like, One of the people that I interviewed talked about this study that she read, um, and I'll link it in the show notes or on our website, where it was all about how, like, different generations' number one policy priority was almost always dictated by some traumatic event that happened in their lives. So, like, generational event. And so, like you know, for so many people who 9-11 is like the defining policy moment of their lifetime, their number one priority is national security and foreign affairs. Or if it's say like the Great Depression, right? Everybody, I mean, I can speak for my grandparents, the way that they, their, their outlook on the economy and the American government is very, very different from mine. And our generation is one of the first in a very, very long time where we're experiencing one of these once in a lifetime events every single year. And so the combination of these events directly impacting us and our access to the internet. And so our understanding of these events that are happening all over the world, which we then internalize because, because of the internet, we are a very empathetic group of people because we're hearing these stories from all over the world all of that anxiety compounds on each other and on itself and on us and and 
Of course we're the most anxious generation. There's no question. Older people act surprised by that. And I just think, look around, talk to a young person, ask them why they're anxious. And I guarantee you they could talk for half an hour about all the different things going on in their lives, a majority of which they had absolutely no control over. But that just happened to them because we're living in the time that we are. Something that Charlie and Vic and I talked about in our conversation about climate anxiety is the use of propaganda from fossil fuel companies to give us climate anxiety, to make us feel like we are individually responsible for our carbon footprint when everyone working in the climate space knows that individuals are not the enemy, corporations are, specifically fossil fuel corporations. And that doesn't take away the fact that we feel guilty. You know, if I take a long shower, I will always feel bad for wasting water. Or if I take an Uber somewhere instead of walking because it's a little bit far, I'm gonna feel bad about that. Even though I know that I'm really not making that big of a difference with one action. So Charlie brought up a really good point in our conversation about the consequences of this propaganda and the individual targeting that fossil fuel companies use to their advantage. So I wanted to play that clip. And then I'm going to talk a little bit to the people who I interviewed about the way that that manifests in their lives. An entire, our entire generation has been, has been gaslit with that propaganda for two decades. Like it was shoved down our throats, documentaries, uh, articles. Do you remember like going to the Scholastic Book Fair and seeing there was like sections on like the dying animals? Like it was, it was, it was commodified like like and inescapable for us it was commodified and and it was packaged in a way that how could our generation how could we not end up in 2021 being overwhelmingly anxious about this and i think an interesting point on this and and we talked about this in our previous conversations is that like this pipeline of caring about the penguins and the polar bears as little kids to climate anxious climate activists it, it was very targeted like very very targeted like in in sarah jackett ray's book she talks about the inequalities of like caring about the climate and the climate movement that we are all aware of um but she talks about how climate anxiety is also unequally distributed because the folks who are receiving the brunt of ecological destruction are overwhelmingly BIPOC folk and and people who live in the global south. And yet, she there was a recent article in Scientific American, too, about how climate anxiety is overwhelmingly white. And as three white people on this podcast right now, talking about climate anxiety, I think, like, we can't avoid acknowledging that. 
but I think it comes, I, I think some of that goes back to like the pipeline of what is being shown to us when we are young and like how we are being brought into the movement into caring about something. So I grew up in, I grew up in the South Shore of Long Island in a predominantly African-American and Hispanic community um, in a low, a, a super low income neighborhood. And the, the only thing that set me apart from my neighbors was the fact that I was white and everything else was the same. And I came out of that and was brought into the climate movement. And I think I attest a lot of that to one, the people that I was around and like the classes and the stuff that I had to worry about all put me on a path that allowed me to become climate anxious. Like I was, I didn't have to worry about being profiled or stopped by the police or any of the other things like with the privilege of being white unlocked the ability for me to, to worry about other things. And I think it's important that we acknowledge that and we don't center guilt when we talk about it, that we center like this is the role we play in the system and like there's stuff that we can do about it, but guilt isn't going to solve it. Um, but I, th I think it's important that we acknowledge that and that we talk about that there's like a definite pipeline of like we've been gaslit, but selectively and on purpose. Funny joke. I'm gonna go cry in the corner. <laughs> yeah, I I can't like you know when at the end of a s school year in college, the dorm halls would be full of people just throwing things away. I have like a visceral reaction to that. I can't look at it and not think about how long that that is going to be in a landfill or in an ocean. I make certain dietary choices for the environment and that's a choice. And my individual action isn't gonna be the same as like DOD slashing their carbon emissions, but perhaps like my individual action is a way that I compensate for feeling like if I don't do anything, then like I have nothing. And so I think that like, for me personally, like um, there's definitely a lot of situations where I explain to people in my life, like, oh, well, like this is why I don't eat meat. Um, and like, you're welcome to join me in that choice. I'm not forcing it upon you. And I know that that's not gonna solve the climate crisis alone, but like, that's something I can do to feel like I'm doing something beyond just, um, acting in the world of politics and advocacy. Yeah, that I think that's the only way I'm able to like justify some of my activities is kind of that like I'm since I'm working in this field that I can pay I can uh, kind of like pay back the emissions that I'm causing. Um, and so like I've been thinking about kind of like uh, people talk about like an individual carbon footprint, but I've been thinking about like an individual carbon debt um, and that like 
whatever activity you do, given the way our society is, you are causing emissions. Like there's an out, you're just causing an outsized number of emissions for literally anything you do. And so to me, the only way to pay back all of those negative emissions is to work in a field towards uh, reducing emissions in the long term so that you can help contribute to a cut overall in how these systems are made. And then that'll help you pay back your individual carbon debt. I, for a while, I actually thought like, you know, if I... I convert completely to zero waste. If I do this, if I do that, it'll be better. It'll be fine. Um, And I always walk around with this little like ball and chain of guilt um, just for being a human being. Um, And it's, it, it, and it's hard to kind of shake that guilt that it's, it's, you know, you have to remember really isn't like you. Um, There's so many factors playing into it, but it's just that guilt of being a human being. It's kind of hard to, to shake off. In the last episode, Charlie's episode about burnout, we had a little discussion about self-care. And I think that when we were talking about climate anxiety, we realized that the conversation wasn't really finished. And the idea of self-care in a space where your entire world is threatened by this looming presence and this mental hurdle that you have to overcome every day, whether that be at your job or at home, self-care is really, really important. So to close this episode out, I just wanted to include the uncut conversation that Charlie and Vic and I had about self-care. I think that these conversations can sometimes get kind of artificial and we I think had a really good talk obviously these are just our experiences with self-care and what works for us and what doesn't but I think that these conversations can be really important especially when we're talking about things like climate anxiety so that's just how I wanted to close the episode out um I'll see you back in a minute Do you guys have trauma? I have trauma. My therapist and I talk about my trauma all the time. Yeah. No um, question. <laughs> I I was reading, so like going back to the the field guide for climate anxiety, field guide to climate anxiety, um, you know, Sarah Jackett Ray has like, you know, this is all I've been reading for the past two weeks, so it's kind of like front and center in my mind, but uh, toward, toward the end, she starts talking about like, um, like strategies and stuff for dealing with climate anxiety. And there was a part uh, where she mentions a clinical psychologist, Sam Himmelstein, uh, who works with students who have suffered trauma. Um, and and in, in, in this, she talks about uh, how he defines self-care. Um, and I think it's really interesting and I'm going to go through this list because I think this is going to be super helpful for our listeners. Um, but I think it's interesting because I think we have a very interesting definition of what self-care is. So, like, what do you guys do for self-care? Like, I impulse shop on Amazon. 
or I... What's the last thing you bought? Uh, I had to buy... I bought two new notebooks. Um, so, like, I have, like, a... a I, I, I know this about myself um, because of my trauma. <laughs> um, <laughs> not to flex. Not to flex. I've been dealing with it for, for years. Um, therapy. Uh, um, but I, I made a, a couple of years ago, uh, I was going through some real shit and I like was blowing through money. I did not have at the beginning, like freshman year. Um, and I started going to therapy and my therapist then was like, you should make a wish list of things that you need, but don't buy them yet. Like things that you will eventually need. And then when you feel that urge to do that impulse buy, like buy one of the things you need and mm. i was like holy shit so that that that's what i do i don't know that's not that helpful maybe that's another side pro tip um what do, what do y'all do for self-care there's a difference between for me self-care that's like easy and i want to do and i'm like i did self-care i'm proud of myself and self-care that's like okay like you gotta go do it and you're probably gonna feel shitty but like you have to do it. And so that is like, okay, the first category is do a face mask, take a bath, um, have dinner with a friend that like two friends that I see who live upstairs, three floors above me. Um, that's the girl boss self-care quote. Unquote. Yeah. Oh, that's a very good way to put it. Okay. So that's my girl, girl boss, boss self-care, my girl boss self-care is do a face mask, take a bath. Um, I don't know if like going to the gym is in that category or not. It probably depends on how I'm feeling, but the like real self care is cleaning. That's like a big one for me. My anxiety is tied very, very closely to how clean my space is, but I hate cleaning. I hate cleaning. Me too. So, what I always tell, I've told my boyfriend, if you ever want to know how I'm feeling, look at how my room looks. And if it's a mess, then you don't even ha have to ask. Like, you know that I feel shitty. If it's clean, then I'm doing okay. And since I've been living alone also, now it's very, very consistent with my mental health because I don't have to keep it clean for anyone. Um, cleaning, if I'm really not feeling good than going to the gym. Like I really didn't want to go today and I knew that this conversation wouldn't be as good if I didn't go. So I forced myself to go and I'm glad I did. Um, Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome guys. And uh, then the last one is like journaling. Like it's kind of stupid, but oftentimes I'm like, if I just don't think about it, the problem will go away. I'll watch an episode of Netflix and I'll cook something for myself and like, it'll be a good night. But if I force myself to sit down and really think through what's going on, I, and then step two of that for me is usually talking to someone about it. Cause it's really hard for me to process things by myself. Um, it's kind of a two-step process, write about it and then talk about it. So those are my two. That was very long and rambly because I think I hadn't really thought about the different categories, but those are my different things that I do. Yeah, Lisa, I think I'm very similar in that like I, I think about my self-care and like in terms of things I like to do and things I don't like to do. And I've been working on making the things I don't like to do 
more into things that I like to do. Um, I'm big on rituals and making things feel like a ritual. So I've always mm-hmm. been someone that like when I'm very stressed, I don't think about eating. Um, so I've like over the past year gotten more into cooking and being into cooking as a hobby has made me better about not forgetting to eat. And mm-hmm. so that's something um, I journaling is one for me too. The past year I've gotten really into tarot and when I'm nervous about the future, I, I check in with the universe and I do a tarot poll and that's really nice to me. Astrology yeah. Patty. <laughs> astrology I don't know, you guys know, but I used to write an astrology <laughs> column. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Oh no. <laughs> No, it's real. You can find it on the Therapy. And uh, <laughs> and I like doing tarot. We'll link it in the show no, notes. Link it in the show notes. I like doing tarot for oh, people that I'm close with as well. And reading. Reading is huge for me. Like just to get out of my own brain. Mm. And lately, like if I can devote an entire Sunday to like reading and like maybe doing laundry that's my ideal Sunday I I don't even remember if it was a TikTok or a tweet or something that I saw a few weeks ago um that really made me have a little discussion with myself where it was saying that this person was was saying I don't remember who it was the issue with us thinking like oh I have to clean my room I have to do the dishes I have to do laundry whatever is not the accurate way to think of it and that it's directly tied to like your self-worth and how you think about yourself and the whole point of doing those things is that like you would want your best friend to have Mm -hmm. a clean room you would want your best friend to have clean clothes and food that they wanted to eat and for their dishes to be put away because you think that Mm -hmm. they deserve it and so you need to give yourself these things because you deserve them. You deserve to like be active and, and like get your energy out. And maybe you don't want to go to the gym, but like if you were talking to your best friend, you would say like, of course you deserve to, to feel good and feel energized. Of course you deserve to have clean sheets. And so you have to talk to yourself that way. And that has over the past few weeks been like a really big shift for me whenever I haven't wanted Mm -hmm. to do something I literally just have to tell myself like you deserve this like you deserve to have clean clothes you need to do your laundry like you need to do this for yourself because you deserve Mm -hmm. it and it's not something of like you have to do this because if I tell myself you have to do this I'm like fuck you no I don't want to but if it's the which is like of you know of course is what my therapist has been telling me for years it's like you have to speak to yourself kindly and I'm always like yeah yeah okay I know but to actually do it yeah exactly exactly but then to actually do it I'm like oh this does work it's interesting that you both had that same things you like to do and things you don't like to do um I think that talking to yourself kindly, like, 
those associations of like doing things that aren't productive and being guilty about it and like tying self-care to not being productive is really dangerous for us um because all of the stuff that you said like i agree like i all of those things are self-care to me too um i i want to as y'all were going down your lists i was reading the list uh, from this clinical psychologist that was cited here. Uh, and I want to share it now because the similarities, y'all hit the points perfectly. We've been to therapy. Um, <laughs> wow. This is like We're a, not rookies. Wow. This is, this is the future that, that progressives <laughs> want. Three people who have gone to therapy to deal with their trauma. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's dealt with, but... <laughs> dealing with current yeah. present tense um okay so this definition of self-care uh encompasses both the care of the self and care of others um and there are four components uh number one regular cultivation of a relaxation response so things like watching tv going out into nature and getting a massage like the all the different types of being able to relax Two, effortful training. These are the things that are like more sustained meditation, exercise, like you said, Louisa, um, where the payoff isn't like instant gratification or instant relaxation. And there's a little bit more time to it. Third, creativity, something that gives purpose, like this podcast, <laughs> and adds vibrancy to life, you know, like talking to me. Um, so that's writing, reading, read, writing, reading, like both of you, painting or mm -hmm. other passions are examples. Um, and then number four is advocacy, uh, which isn't advocacy in like the terms of like going out and advocating for an issue you care about. It's advocating for yourself, uh, especially everything from learning to say no and setting your own boundaries all the way up to getting engaged in a social movement and like changing policy or changing something, just being able to change anything mm -hmm. will help you is self-care. So, um, yeah, I think it's, I don't know. What, what do you take from that? I have, I have no thoughts anymore. <laughs> this reminded me of something uh, I was going to say, when you're talking about individual action uh, earlier before we got sidetracked by middle school, and I think in terms of the actions we make and largely our consumption in response to climate change, I don't think that changing our consumption is inherently a bad thing, but I think it's something that we need to radically reframe because I think right <laughs> now we see it through the lens that we were told to see it through as children, the way that the propaganda uh, led us to, which is that we need to be ashamed for how long we shower or for how many animal products we consume or for what we consume uh, in general. And I don't think that that 
is an accurate frame or a helpful frame or a healthy frame. And I think instead we should start to see those actions as kind of living for the world that we would want to live in, the world that we want to create. And I watched this video by a YouTuber uh, called Mexi the other day, and she was talking about sort of living the revolution. And she's talked about in the past how like she doesn't see herself as vegan, like TM, but rather as like veganism as uh, like a political ideology, like not like as a consumer identity, but as a political identity. And I, that's something that really resonates with me, right? So like, don't base your identity on the things that you can consume or do consume, but rather like, it's a political ideology of like being against exploitation and you can be against exploitation whether or not you have access to vegan cheese on your pizza, right? Or like whether or not you choose to make that decision you can still be against exploitation and it's not like we shouldn't be basing our identities on our consumption habits. Anyway, in that video, she was like, I don't think that veganism is like, I don't think that like eating vegan is going to save the world, for example. But I do think that like, in the world that I want to exist in, I don't want there to be like exploitative factory farms. So if I can like start to live that choice in whatever way, like, makes sense to me, then, like, maybe I'll do that. So, like, I don't want to live in a world where clothes are made in sweatshops. So, for me, like, choosing not to wear clothes made in sweatshops, it's not something that I'm going to feel guilty about if I can't make that choice. But if I can make it, I don't see it as, like, a consumption habit that is an identity, but rather, like, me training myself for the world that I would like to live in. So it's it's creative rather than consumptive. Mhm. Mm totally.
Yeah. Also in um in the Mexi video, she was talking about the idea of of building dual power, which is kind of like building power that exists outside of the existing structures of power. Um, and that was just another way she was talking about like living the revolution. But you know, basically like we kind of think of revolution, right, as like this one instant moment that is often like incredibly violent and full of upheaval. And that's not actually how revolutions, revolutions meaning like a change in a paradigm, a change in like a structure of power or a system of power, like things that happen every day, um, like that, it doesn't happen in a moment, right? Like it happens in a value shift. It happens in everyday actions of people and there doesn't need to be any violence involved. And one of like the ways that you can do that is just, yeah, by building communities and building resilience and really like, I, I don't think, I hear people say this often about how like there's not enough talking about like the world that we could live in. Like we dread the world that, we could live in that is dystopian, but we don't talk enough about the world that we could live in. That's that is, I don't believe in utopia, but closer to it. And the, the possibilities. Um, Vic, I love the framing of living the values of the world that you want to live in and like having like this radical imagination for like the world that we not that not that we just want to live in, but like I think the world that we deserve to live in, like the world that like the world that we should be living in. I think in terms of like climate anxiety, to take it a step further, to live the values and like to deal with to live like that and live in those values, I think an important aspect of that is like finding a community and not being alone and like a sense of solidarity. And I think that once we can do that, and I think, you know, that's part of what this podcast aims to do is like create a sense of community and create uh, a sense of commonality among young folk. I think that that's like a radical step towards like oh, the world that we, that we're envisioning. And I think that that in itself is a huge first step in like dealing with our climate anxiety, among other things. I was at some sunrise talk, I don't even remember, months ago, and um, Bershini was talking about her vision of the world when the Green New Deal was passed. And it was the first time that I had ever heard anyone concretely explain how they see our world shifting mm -hmm. and it was the first time that I was like oh like it is possible and things are gonna change and she was talking about like you know having a vegetable garden in her backyard and like a flower bed under her window and like watching people bike by and like the electric bus driving by like taking her kids to school or whatever but like the way that she described it was 
I hadn't felt that sense of calm in a climate space in a long time, if ever, because it was this presentation of a possibility that was was presented as realistic, not as something that was, first of all, specific to something like, this is how our energy grid is going to look, or this is what we want our high-speed rail to look like, or, you know, this is how the corporate structure of a solar company should be designed. It was nothing like that. It was like, when you wake up, this is what your day looks like. And I, even since then, have not heard anyone talk about our future that way. And I think that's one of the things that makes me so scared is I genuinely have no idea what to expect. And that dampens my ability to see things in the future in a positive way because I feel like I have nothing to look forward to. She gave everyone who was listening to her something very concrete and specific to look forward to. Yeah, I think I just want to say that like we know what we're fighting against, but we need to remember and maybe discover what we're fighting for. Um, and I think getting to imagine that is really exciting. Thanks for listening to this episode of Uncharted Territory. This episode was produced by me, Louisa Chiani, with help from my co-hosts, Victoria Middleton and Charlie Olson. I want to thank everybody who talked to me for this episode and made it what it is. If you liked the show, we would love it if you could leave us a rating and a review. It helps other people find us. It would also be awesome if you shared this episode with your friends or family or anyone who you think might have a little bit of climate anxiety. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to tell us your story or just reach out, you can find us on Twitter at UnchartedPod. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.